Hi, this is Daniel Hartz, host of the Sustainability Matters Today podcast. We have some exciting news. On June 22nd, we'll be changing the name of our podcast from Sustainability Matters Today to Sustainability Champions. The reason for the change is because the new name Sustainability Champions better captures what we're going for, highlighting the people, ideas, and innovations that are protecting and healing the planet. Thank you for your support and interest in our work so far. We look forward to producing high quality podcast episodes and social media materials under the new name, Sustainability Champions. Please join us in showcasing these incredible individuals and the great work they're doing. By the way, do you know a sustainability champion you'd like to nominate to be on the podcast? Reach out to me at daniel at sustainabilitychampions.com to let me know. Thank you very much. Now back to your regularly scheduled podcast. I'm joined by Chris Davies, founder and CEO of Harvest London. Thank you so much for joining me, Chris. Thank you for having me on your podcast. Awesome. And I like to, to start by really understanding what is it that, that you do, Why, as in, I guess, more specifically, what problem do you solve? Sure. Um, so Harvest London are a vertical farm. We okay. run and operate uh, vertical farms um, in London. And the problem we solve is fundamentally the fact that we are all members of a very broken food system. Mm. So the food that we consume is usually grown very far away, um, has traveled a very long way, has spent a lot of time at the supply chain. And we think that there's a fundamental problem to that. Um, so it's all about food production at the point of consumption and making sure that we're reducing the food mileage um, and at the same time, improving the quality and the sustainability of the produce that we all consume. Yeah, I think that's that's really cool. I actually, when you mentioned about the uh, the long supply chain, I think it was one of the someone on on your one of your clients was saying that it can take like eleven weeks between when food is picked and when it's actually served in a restaurant. Yeah, that's right. Um, you know, depending on what the crop is, um, the produce will spend between, you know, two to 11 weeks in the supply chain. Um, on average, it will travel in the UK, at least um, it, on average, it will travel about 2,500 miles. Um, you know, 85% of the produce that we consume in the UK comes from Europe, um, which is why, you know, we're very dependent on European produce and very dependent on European supply chain. So, you know, that's why when you go into um, a supermarket, you'll see that most of the bags of lettuce uh, are gassed. Um, and the moment you open the bag, they and stick it in the fridge, they will wilt and the, the quality isn't very well. Uh, you know, that's because they need to spend 11 weeks or, you know, up to 11 weeks in the supply chain. And um, yeah, so the, the quality and the sustainability is a big problem. Yeah, I, I I eat a lot of spinach, um, yeah. and yeah, it's amazing. You're you're absolutely right. I've noticed that you like it looks beautiful when when you buy it, and then you open it, take it out, it's fine, and then the next day, it's not only is it wilting, but it's already getting like soggy and wet. It's soggy and gross. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, like for you know, one of the advantages of having your own farm is I get to have a lot of very nice produce at home. Yeah. Um, so I take some produce home from from the farm and. I, you know, I do the same thing that everyone does. I forget that it's in the fridge. Um, but for the produce that we have, I forget that it's in the fridge. And, you know, I remember like a week and a half to two weeks later, and it's still beautiful. It's still totally fine. 
Um, and that's really just a function of how quickly we go from harvest to delivery and how short the supply chain we give to our customers is. Wow. So basically, I've never actually even considered that. I mean, that's really interesting because um, what you're saying is that produce actually can last for a long time. Uh, it's just that usually supply chains are so long that the majority of their lifespan is spent getting from the farm to you as the consumer that by the time they're with you, you only have like a few days really, or maybe up exactly. To a week. Yeah, absolutely. And I think at the same time, um, you know, the, the, what you hold your produce in, whether that's a bag or whether that's the crisper in your fridge, that, that mm -hmm. does matter. Um, you know, for for green leafy vegetables, for example, keeping it in an airtight container does will drastically um, expand extend the life the life cycle of of the produce. Yeah, interesting. I I didn't consider that. Actually, I have seen. Um, now that I think about it, there's all sorts of things on Instagram about like here's how to make your vegetables and your fruits last longer. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. An airtight that crisp that crisper drawer that crisper drawer in in the fridge. I mean, you know, depending on obviously depending on what it is, but yeah. keeping your produce in that in that section um, will do a lot to to keep your produce fresh. Oh, good to know. That's a, a fun <laughs> fact. Uh, that's helpful. I'll I'll start using it more. Uh, consciously thank you for the <laughs> pro tip um it, so in terms of how you actually solve this problem you, you mentioned a couple of words so first of all a vertical farm which um is obviously very different than a horizontal farm uh, and then <laughs> you're also saying uh basically growing the food where you consume it so yeah. I, I mean basically i mean so what how do you solve this broken food system sure um so you know uh, uh, would you like me to explain a little bit about what a vertical farm is? And yeah, please, that, that, that'd be yeah. helpful. So, you know, a vertical farm is fundamentally um, taking a bunch of different technologies all together so that we're improving the sustainability and efficiency of traditional farming. So mm -hmm. vertical farming is the combination of uh, hydropon in our case, hydroponic technology alongside LED lights and racking so that we are mm -hmm. actually growing in towers in a warehouse um by racking you mean so, sorry just to clarify by racking you mean literally yeah. like st stacking racks or yeah like, exactly like shelves um, basically. That, that yeah just having on the shelves um and that obviously means that you're a lot more efficient with the space right. um because you're growing right on top of each other rather than growing on one axis where you're just yeah. growing on flat ground, for example, right? Mm -hmm. The fact that we're growing in towers, the fact that we're growing in racks means that we can be, we can produce a lot more in a smaller amount of space. Mm -hmm. um, you combine the space efficiency with hydroponic technology, which is essentially, which essentially means not growing within soil, but growing um, within uh, using it fundamentally in water. Mm -hmm. um, and you add to that, LED lights, which means you're essentially, you know, in our farm, for example, our lights are on 22 hours a day. So that means that it's daylight for, for, for our plants for 22 hours a day. And that means that they grow a lot faster um, than a traditional farm. The, the kind of anecdotal um, industry wisdom is within the same amount of space you can grow 350 times the amount of produce while do and do, you can do that um, while being 90 while using 90% less water and 95% less fertilizer 
Wow. So it's very space efficient. It's very water efficient. There are definitely some drawbacks. So for example, it's very energy intensive. Okay. But I think the fact that you end up producing some very high quality produce and at the same time, by the market engaging with this kind of produce, you're transitioning the supply chain to one being very long to one that's very short. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, I spoke about... Sorry, just about about that energy efficiency piece. I'm wondering, you know, although it may be more energy, it, it may require more energy. Um, you know, the fact that you're using a lot less space and a lot less water, and also it's significantly closer. I mean, one of, the, one of your clients says that, or maybe it was you again who who was saying that you can, from the moment you harvest to the moment that it's being served, uh, from your farm to a restaurant, it can be four hours. Uh, yeah, absolutely. So I mean, I, I wonder how much energy you're saving in that process. Uh, you know, like net, if you start if you start looking at the 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 net energy consumption versus the massive supply chain versus yeah. the energy that it takes to grow, absolutely, who ultimately is more efficient. We're we're very we're very we're doing a lot of research on that space. The thing yeah. about um, you know global supply chains is it's very opaque. You yeah. can't you know if if it's all you know. Let's say we have one of our customers, for example, buys all of their produce from Italy, um, and we've done some calculations that and these are just very at this stage quite basic calculations. Mm -hmm. But we are by switching their supply chain from Italy to us, um, we are saving them over 150,000 food miles per year. Wow. Um, and just the very fact that the produce that they're using doesn't come from Italy anymore, and as you said, goes from harvest to delivery within four hours, the produce that they get is significantly better just because it hasn't traveled very far. Mm -hmm. um, in this particular instance, they use they buy a lot of basil from us, um, basil is one of those crops, one of those ingredients that the moment you pick basil, it loses a lot of its pungency. It loses a lot of its flavor. So the fact that we can give them basil that has been grown in, and that has been grown in London and is usable within hours of harvesting um, is a significant improvement onto the produce that they're currently getting. Yeah, and I think that that makes a lot of sense in terms of like how close it is as well. The the system that you're uh, that you've designed these vertical farms. Uh, I mean, they're all indoors because you're saying LED lights. Yeah, absolutely. On. So it can really be anywhere as long as there's enough space. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you, I, we, my company, Harvest London, we are enjoying this kind of second wave of vertical farms. If I think about the first generation of vertical farms, it was back, you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. Mm. Um, and because of efficiencies and, or because of inefficiencies of LED technology back then, all of those farms have essentially failed and they pivoted to become, you know, vertical farming technology providers, for right. example. Um, for us, because LEDs, for example, LEDs improve their efficiency by 50% year on year. And the fact that LEDs are now at a point where um, they don't produce a lot of heat, they're pretty efficient in terms of the energy usage. We're enjoying this kind of second wave of, of vertical farms. But uh, another example of the, or another facet of the first set of vertical farms is there was a lot of, in the first wave, there was a lot of putting farms on rooftops. And obviously that has 
inefficiencies in the sense of you need to get your hardware up there. There are ergonomic considerations that, you know, growing on a rooftop, while it might sound cool, isn't actually that efficient. But they also severely underestimated the amount of produce that you can grow on a rooftop. So what they found was they would grow a lot of produce on a rooftop, can't quite sell it to the local market. They would have to take the produce, drive it just outside of London to where the distribution centers are, and then drive it back in for for the next round of customers. So if I think about the kinds of companies that are doing what I do now, we're all just on the outskirts of London or just, you know, just within the M25, not in the very, very center of town. And, but we're still enjoying the efficiency or we're still enjoying local food production. You know, it's not 2,500 miles, it's five miles. Yeah. And going to that, what you, what you just said about, um, about driving out and basically having extra stuff, um, that you can't sell. That's, yeah. is how, how, how do you, deal with things that you can't sell or is that not your reality yeah i I mean that's a very very good question um we and and it's actually one of the ways that differentiates harvest london from some Mm -hmm. of our competitors so um there i have competitors in the space that for example will grow three or four different kinds of leaf and stick it in a bag and sell it in a sainsbury's or sell it in a tesco so they've Mm -hmm. gone down that b2c market we have purposefully chosen to only work with chefs and only work with restaurants and restaurant groups. Um, but what that means is everything that we grow is actually grown to order. So we don't grow for growing sake because that results in the challenge that you've just said. If I grow something and you'll end up growing a lot of something, you end up with the challenge of selling it. And if you can't sell it, then you're wasting it fundamentally. Yeah. It just goes to waste. Um, when we started off, we were doing that because we wanted to kind of learn and, and and grow as much as we can so we could learn as quickly as we can. And what we ended up doing is we ended up donating to, um, you know, uh, food banks and, and charity, food charities and all of that kind of stuff. But now that we've kind of hit our stride a bit, um, we're very passionate about everything that we do being a partnership with our chefs. So um, we work with chefs to, and we really understand exactly how much they need on a weekly basis. And we grow only that. Um, and that means that one, they can be more efficient because we understand exactly how much they need. So there's no food waste at their stage, right. but there's also no food waste at our stage of growing because, you know, we'll only grow exactly what they need and, and that's it. One of the things that we say is, we don't sell produce. We sell the capacity to grow produce. Mm. So it's a really big, the, the partnership that we have with our chefs is a very big part of, of um, kind of what makes Harvest London unique. Yeah, that's cool. I mean, I think uh, I would definitely set you up for that because I knew that that's, um, that that's exactly what you do is this growing to order. Is Appreciate so that cool. setup. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the, the growing to order is such, it's a unique model. And I, I, you know, I can't imagine any, regular farmer like you said your competitors it's not really something that they're able to do um just because like when when you have a farm i mean things grow and it takes a while and i suppose it it goes back to that point about uh the fact that you keep your lights on for 22 hours so you can grow things much faster than a a regular farm absolutely well we actually got this idea from a traditional farmer so one of our um one of our customers um 
in the autumn of 2018, he was talking to a traditional farmer for growing squashes for the following autumn. So he was talking to a farmer in, in autumn of 2018 for produce that he wanted to buy in August, 2019. Wow. So he was thinking three seasons ahead, <laughs> but for the exact same point that you've raised, um, you know, we only need, you know, we, we can't grow squashes because of some of the limitations of, of uh, vertical farming, but we are, we only ask our chefs to think four to six weeks ahead rather than three seasons ahead. So if I pretend that you're, you know, a chef that wants to work with us, right? The, the first step for us is understanding, okay, how big is your restaurant and what does your, you know, spring menu look like? Okay, your spring menu involves a lot of spinach, it involves a lot of coriander, it involves X, Y, and Z. So we understand how much you need of that week on week. Um, and when your menu, and even though we and my business is not seasonal in the sense that we're unaffected by seasons because we're always, you know, it's always a perfect growing day in the farm. Our chefs and our, and our customers all still think seasonally and people want to eat seasonally. Right. Yeah, of course. So all we, what we tell our chefs is, you know, four to six weeks before your menu transitions from your spring menu to your summer menu, come talk to us and engage with us because what we'll do is all that space that we've used to grow all the produce that you used in the summer in the wind in the spring months will just transition that space to growing whatever it is you need for the summer months right and and that's you know and that that's kind of goes back to that point of we don't sell produce we sell the capacity to grow produce right it doesn't matter what they ask us to grow we've grown over a hundred different things and it's really up to them in terms of what they want from us and 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 what they want their menu to look like Mm -hmm. And so what are some of the things that you can grow? I mean, over a hundred things is quite a lot. Yeah. So if I think about, um, if I think about like the, there, there are limitations for, for hydroponic technology and, and mm -hmm. hydroponic growing, um, it's kind of bread and butter is herbs and anything green and leafy. So, you know, we've grown a lot of different kinds of basil. We've grown a lot of different kinds of, you know, Asian herbs, Asian greens, a lot of komatsuna, a lot of choy, a lot of spinach. Um, the most interesting stuff that we've grown is, it's really a, a huge range of herbs. Um, a lot of, you know, there are some, a lot of very like weird and wonderful herbs that come from Southeast Asia or Mexico or South America that, you either can't get here or if you can get them has obviously traveled from very far away. Um, you know, we've grown a lot of Mexican marigold. We've grown a lot of um, hyssop. We've grown a lot of um, one of my favorite things that we grow is a thing called nasturtiums, which is a very like spicy leaf. It's fun. It's, it's actually a weed, but it, it's a very good tasting weed. Um, you know, so there's a lot of that kind of stuff. And we, we make it a point to find weird and wonderful things that you can't get here or, and find those seeds. And, you know, sometimes they don't grow hydroponically, but sometimes they grow really, really happily hydroponically. We, we've had a chef in the past actually bring us seeds from mm. India. Um, and he's like, Hey, try growing this for us um some of it worked some of it didn't but you know that's part of the whole growing thing this is another way that we kind of differentiate ourselves right 
because we work with chefs and because we work in restaurants, it's all about variety and it's all about weird things and it's all about like interesting ingredients. So we make it a point to always be trying new things, always be trying to grow new things. That's cool. So I, I wonder, I mean, when you step into your farm, maybe you, you can't tell this anymore, but are you hit with like the most incredible motley and array of smells? <laughs> you know what it really smells like? It smells like oxygen. It smells like ozone. It's a really, really nice smell. I mean, we grow a lot of basil, so it smells like basil predominantly. Right. But every once in a while, you'll get this like ozone hit and it feels mm. great. And you, you end up taking this really big whiff and you take a, a really big inhale. It's great. Um, it's one of my favorite things. But farms are also, most farms, um, without going too much into it, most farms are bathed in this bright pink light because plants like blue and red light. So mm. the combination of blue and red is, is is pink. So you walk into a farm and everything's bright pink. And then the moment you walk outside the farm, because your eyes have got used to the pink, everything just looks like this weird off yellow kind yeah. of thing. And your eyes take a while to kind of come back. Um, that was a cool little thing that we kind of learned over time. Yeah, that's really interesting. <laughs> we now use glasses. We now use glasses to to kind of black out, block out some of that light. <laughs> yeah, makes sense. So you're not shocked all the time every time you step outside. Yeah. Um, going, uh, I'm interested in, in knowing a little bit more about kind of your company on a, on a bigger scale rather than just the inside the farm. Because I, I know when we were talking before, you were mentioning that circular economy and, and the holistic thinking is a really important factor. So, um, I mean, we kind of, met, we kind of touched on um, food traveling pretty much like less than 10 miles sometimes. Um, yeah. uh, we, and, and I think we've, we've sort of touched a little bit on, on energy, but uh, w- what are some of these other elements in terms of your holistic thinking and the way that you approach, you know, what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, we, we briefly touched on one of the challenges of vertical farming, which is energy intensiveness, right? Yeah, yeah. My, the energy cost of a vertical farm is usually its single biggest cost, greater even than labor. Um, so the whole, we've kind of started thinking about how vertical farms can operate within the context of other businesses and usually sustainably focused businesses. So let me give you an example. Um, we are currently, we are talking to a solar farming company who have a solar farm just outside of London mm-hmm. and they want to get into vertical farming. So the, what we're discussing with them is, okay, how much energy can that can your solar farm produce? And we essentially work backwards from there. So right now they're selling all of their energy to the grid and the government buys that and it's a very good business. But that has its own costs and its own challenges. So what we were saying is like, look, what happens if we put a vertical farm on site where the solar farm is and all of the energy that you can that that is generated by the solar farm feeds the vertical farm well then you've just now essentially described what is a zero carbon vertical farm if you can get all of and that's not something that exists in the world at all so it would be quite a an amazing thing to be able to do considering how energy intensive vertical farming is to be able to become zero carbon or net neutral by just thinking more holistically about the Mm -hmm. system where you have power generation alongside food production 
um, you know, vertical farms, while they, it ends up producing a lot of uh, very nice produce, ends up also producing a lot of organic waste because, you know, the roots and the, you know, all the bits of the, the plant that you don't consume. So if you then pair that with anaerobic digestion, where you can stick all the organic produce, or sorry, all the organic waste into an anaerobic digester, which in and of itself generates power, that's another way where you can create this kind of circular loop of, it, it's kind of this, you know, this, this beneficial circle of, oh, I'm just using the, and you're able to think holistically about this entire model. So, you know, an anaerobic digester will end up producing a lot of energy. It ends up producing a lot of heat, mm -hmm. which the vertical farm needs because we need to keep it warm. Um, anaerobic digesters also produce a lot of CO2, which, you know, for example, one of the anaerobic digesters that we work with today, they just pump CO2 into the air. Obviously not ideal. Um, we need CO2 because we need to pump it into the farm because plants need CO2. Right. So we're very big proponents of kind of thinking about this entire ecosystem very, very holistically and, you know, circular economy thinking, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, we talk a lot about, or there's a lot of talk in the industry about how, you know, um, finance is cheap and money is cheap and you can, you know, get access to a lot of funds very easily. Where I think we want to, here's a very real tangible way where you can leverage that for something that is truly sustainable and truly beneficial all around, right? You're taking the big challenges of vertical farming and just by throwing a little bit more money at it, you're able to think holistically and say, okay, vertical farming alongside power generation, alongside heat generation you created a uh, a virtuous circle and those might be you know three different companies that do that but because you've looked at it holistically and because you as three companies have all agreed to work together you're creating a very very you're creating a lot of produce for very little input yeah it's really cool i mean it's um it requires no kind of external uh factors almost you know it's all held within yeah. its, within itself it's basically a little mini ecosystem um in many ways so i mean where because I, I think that that ana anaerobic digestion piece sounds like it can do so much good um the solar farm as well uh the anaerobic digestion piece has multiple components to it um mm, yeah absolutely and um so i mean in terms of like CO2, you mentioned that you're pumping ozone, um, but CO2 is, where, where, where are you getting CO2 now or, or is it just? Yeah, right now we just have a, we just have a tank, to be honest, that, that sits within our HVAC system. Um, so HVAC is essentially the climate control system yeah. that we have in the farm. Um, and as part of that HVAC system, we pump CO2 into the farm. Um, we just buy the CO2. We just buy tanks of CO2. And when it runs out, we replace the tank. That's a very kind of common thing. Mm. Um, but, you know, if you, again, if you pair it with an anaerobic digester, they're essentially just pumping it into the air. So with a little bit more planning and a little bit more infrastructure, instead of, you know, the, the vent that is venting CO2 into the air, vent it into the farm. And yeah. then, you know, so it's that kind of holistic model, which we're very keen on. That's really cool. I mean, one of, one of the things I'm always interested in is how does environmental sustainability affect 
a company's bottom line and you know essentially top line as well. So basically, the financial side of of a business. And it sounds like you know instead of buying tanks of CO two and then having someone pick them up and send refills and so on, you essentially just build this thing and then you get. I mean, technically free CO2 for the rest yeah. of, for as long as you need, really. So as you know, I mentioned that, so yes, if we wanted to do that ourselves, you know, anaerobic digestion is a very, very complicated thing. And I don't think we'd ever get into the realms of having our own big anaerobic digester. We could have a small one to just handle small things. But in order to produce the CO2 and the heat and the energy necessary, it would have to be quite a large thing. And that's a very, very engineering heavy, you know, there are, companies out there that only do anaerobic digestion and they will have, you know, six to seven different sites and they'll use a variety of different inputs. But the benefit to them is, you know, in this, in this particular company's instant, in this particular instance, um, they're, as I said, they're just venting CO2 into the air. We're saying, look, if you set it up, we'll buy that from you. Right. And we'll buy for you for uh, hopefully not very much, but we'll buy that from you. And for them, that's, another revenue stream that previously didn't exist right yeah and it makes so it, all look good it, too, it is a mutually beneficial relationship yeah exactly and it, it in addition to the financial element like you said mutually beneficial it's it's good for them as well because um now they're not just dumping carbon dioxide into the air and it's actually going to yeah. a place where it will be turned into oxygen so exactly. their their footprint yeah. becomes uh, effectively smaller as well yeah, um, absolutely. I'm really I'm curious to know, and I'm I'm conscious of time, so I, I, hopefully we won't. Uh, there's a lot about the B Corp status because uh, you're you're sure. B Corp pending, and I, I'm really interested in in hearing a little bit more about that because I think B Corps are uh, kind of like the coolest thing ever um, because basically my understanding of a B Corp is it's companies that are for profit um, and sort of socially or environmentally driven is that yes. kind of a fair yeah um you know the b corp if i think about who the biggest b corp in the world is the biggest b corp in the world is probably patagonia um obviously wow. very very nature focused yeah big you know uh, you know very big on sustainability they reuse they recycle a lot of their pro- a lot of their old um clothing and all of that kind of stuff but the B Corp movement, as far as I understand it, has really kind of started out of the U.S. If you think about the, the U.S. as kind of a, you know, in, in the, the U.S. model of capitalism is, you know, profit is king, right? Where, so if a company in the U.S. actually chooses to negatively impact their bottom line because they're making more sustainable choices, their shareholders could hold them to account for that. It's like a shareholder's point is all about maximizing profit. Well, in Patagonia sense, their profits could probably be significantly higher if they didn't care so much about sustainability. Mm -hmm. But what the, so we have our, we were a pending B Corp. What that means is we're in the process of certifying to become a B Corp. But in that process, you essentially have to sign up to becoming a B Corp and actually make changes to your company structure. And what it says is fundamentally that profit is not our our only motive. Yes, we are a for-profit company, but there are other things that we will consider. So it's not just about profit. So Mm -hmm. for example, you know, we will purposefully choose to 
take on more cost in terms of not using any single-use plastics, um, you know, everything that we deliver today is in reusable containers because we have a good relationship with the chefs. So reusable containers are more expensive than one-off plastics. Yeah. But we've purposefully made that choice because it's the right choice. My farm could make much more, much more money because uh, if I just grew for growing sake, if I just grew as much as I could on a daily basis, on a weekly basis, we could make a lot more money. But we've chosen not to do that because we believe that that results in a lot of food waste. Yeah, I think I, that's really interesting. And it, 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 is, it sounds really um, kind of like I, they're looking at everything. It's very thorough from that point of view. I'm, I'm, I'm just wondering, you know, how many, because obviously what these things that, that you're, you're, you're signing up for and committing to are obviously kind of, there's this element of for the greater good. There's this element of, like you said, you know, it, your company isn't just for profit, it's for other kind of benefits. I'm wondering how do, because the, the, the values that this B Corp push like i mean i don't want to say pushes but that that it it really encourages uh, and supports are are really important so how would we get really large corporations or even smaller corporations that are focused purely on profit you know it just begs the question in my opinion how do you encourage and motivate others because you in my from what i understand it sounds to me like in many ways you got into this business into the business that you do because you're already driven by sustainability and by doing good for the world. So, you know, it yeah. makes sense that you kind of extend that and go for the B Corp. But what about the people who go into business purely for profit because they just want to make a lot of money? Uh, you know, how, and I, I, I don't know if there's an answer to this, but it's just a question that I have is really, how would we encourage them to also move toward being interested in, in B Corp status? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think, I, I don't think it's wrong to say that, you know, Patagonia are a huge, huge outlier. Um, right. They are by far the biggest B Corp. Like it's not even close. Most B Corps are small companies that mm. ha- do not have, you know, the behemoth of being a big corporate company yeah, all the bureaucracy with existing all shareholders and all the bureaucracy, yeah. you know, to switch a company from that to becoming a B Corp. I imagine is a huge, huge challenge. You know, we have the benefit of being able to start from scratch as a B Corp. So we don't have to go through the pain of changing who we are. And I don't think, I don't think that motivation is going to come from those companies internally. You know, Um, I think the motivation for that is going to come from the consumer choosing with their pocket and with their wallet. Right. Like, if a consumer knows that, um, you know, they can choose two different companies that pretty much do the same thing. I don't know, Coke and Coca-Cola and Pepsi, pretty much the same thing. Sure, you'll, you'll prefer over the other. But if you choose with your wallet and you know that, for example, company A is more sustainable or focuses on sustainability rather than company B, then, you know, by choosing with your wallet, then, then hopefully you're pushing people down that path, right? Um, or you're pushing companies down that path to say, look, sustainability, it's not just about, it's not just about, you know, being this faceless corporate behemoth. It's also about, you know, you guys are making millions and millions of dollars over from us, from the consumer. We want to see you giving back. Right. And, yeah. and I think that's, 
I think that over, you know, that is changing. Definitely. I think, you know, sustainability is obviously very big. Um, I don't think, I think the time of the corporate behemoth where it's purely profit is hopefully coming to an end where, you know, cause those guys in, in order to make, in order to earn all that money, in order to make all that money is almost certainly detrimental in a lot of different ways, right? Whether that's detrimental from a sustainability angle, whether that's detrimental from a, you know, child labor perspective, whether that's, um, you know, zero out only ever hiring zero hours contract people, yeah. right? They, they, you, you know, companies, I think, are going to need to take a stand about what they actually stand for. And they can't just be thinking bottom line anymore, I think. Yeah, I think it makes sense. And I think you're absolutely right. right. Voting with your with your wallet is the way that people and companies will start moving into a different direction. Um, final questions here is um, one thing I, I like to ask just for a, from an inspirational standpoint is um, what, what else do you do in addition to, I mean, all this incredible work that you do with Harvest London, kind of like personally on a day-to-day uh, basis, whether at work or at home, to be environmentally friendly? Um, you know, we're, we, tr- we try to be for, for us at the moment within, within my, my household and my family, you know, we try to reduce as much food waste as possible. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we obviously recycle and we compost and, and do all of that kind of stuff, but it's also about being a little bit more aware of what exactly it is you're buying and how much of something you're buying and making sure that you're using as much of it as you can, you know, um, you know, I'm all for, you know, ugly vegetables that, you know, get wasted and, 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 and using all of that kind of stuff. Um, I'm also just big on, you know, I'm a big cyclist. I cycle everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, you know, making sure that, yeah, essentially those, those, those are, are, are two big things for me. Yeah, I think that's awesome. Composting is um, is great, and like we were saying earlier about anaerobic digestion, so much opportunity there, turning yeah, waste absolutely. into gold. Um, well, <laughs> yeah, Chris, thank you very much for your time, and and for anyone who's interested in, in learning about Harvest London and uh, maybe trying some of your food at some of the at some of the restaurants. W- where can people learn about the work you're doing and find out uh, where where it's being served and etc. Absolutely. Um, well, thank you for having me. Um, visit our website, harvest.london. Um, because we work with chefs, we're all over Instagram as well. So follow us on Instagram, harvest.london. Um, we're just about to expand into um, delivering all of Pizza Pilgrims' basil. Um, so, you know, they have about 15 stores um, all around London. Um, and if you walk into one of them and have one of their pizzas, it's almost certainly going to be our basil that, um, you get to taste. Oh, one more reason to try. I haven't actually tried pizza pilgrims yet. That's one. On oh, you're list. missing out. It's really yeah. good. I've heard, I've heard <laughs> only great things about it. Now with, with your basil, it certainly will be even better. That's awesome, Chris. Well, thank you again for your time. I think the work you're doing is so cool. And, uh, it was a lot of fun. talking. Thank you. It was good talking to you. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, give us a five-star rating. And also, please subscribe, whether on your podcast app or on YouTube. And that way you can be the first to know about new episodes. Thank you very much and talk to you soon.